Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Lift up your hearts. Almighty God, you are the Father Almighty. And therefore, we are your children. We are frail children, foolish children, rebellious children, but you are our good and faithful Father. And since you are Father Almighty, we trust that even though we may wander and stumble, sin and rebel, and the world may tremble and shake and rage, nothing can stand between you and us. And we believe this first and foremost because of your only perfect Son, Jesus Christ, who tasted death for us, who endured the wrath and isolation due to our sin and who rose up triumphant over the grave so that now there is no condemnation and nothing can separate us from your love and we can smile at all our enemies. So we worship you now, our almighty Father, trusting in the goodness and obedience and victory of Jesus Christ alone by the power of his spirit, world without end, and amen. Amen. One of the most startling and offensive claims of the New Testament is that religious people must be converted and born again. We often forget who Jesus and the apostles were talking to in their recorded ministries. Most often they were talking to religious people, people who went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, who heard the scriptures read, who participated in the feasts and tried to keep the law of God. And yet Jesus came to them and said, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, three. Jesus even insisted on this with a seminary professor of his day. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3. Later, Peter preached the same thing in the temple in Jerusalem in the temple in Jerusalem. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, Acts 3, 19. And so the same message is for us and for every generation. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does this mean? It means that God himself must take up residence in you. It means you need to have a new heart so that sin no longer has mastery over you. It means you must have a new hope and a new love in Christ that fills you such that you want to serve him with all that you are, that you look forward to the day when all the nations will worship him, that you will long to see him and be with him forever. So are you born again? Does Christ live in you? 
Have you died and is your life hidden with Christ in God? Do you know that peace, that joy, that hope? And do not say, well, I'm in church, aren't I? Do not say, well, I got baptized, didn't I? Don't say to yourself, well, I go to a Christian school or my parents are Christians. No, those are all true gifts and true blessings, but only as they nurture a true and living faith. So as we gather for worship this morning, do not miss the most important thing. Do not miss Jesus. As we prepare to confess our sins, turn to Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended on page 255. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers thee in thy ways. Behold, thou wast angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there is no one who calls on thy name, who arouses himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hidden thy face from us and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in many ways, in our thoughts, in our words, in what we have done, and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, particularly those closest to us, in our own homes, our spouses, our children, our parents, our siblings, our roommates. We know that in your justice you might bring the results and consequences of our sins upon us. You might justly expose our sins for all to know. But we cry out to you for mercy in the name of Jesus. We ask you to blot out our sins and remember them no more. We ask you to wash us clean, make us whiter than snow. Remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. We do this only because you have invited us to and because you have promised to do far more than we ask or think. So hear us now as we silently confess our own individual sins to you. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You have humbled yourself honestly before the Lord, and he is more ready to hear and forgive than you are scarcely able to believe. So do not doubt only believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. God. The text this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 8. These are the words of God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we consider your word today, your spirit would be present in our midst 
And I pray that as he is present, he would reveal to us what you want us to know. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and amen. amen. So we are working our way through 1 John uh, and considering various topics. Last week, we looked at lust in 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, this week, we're going to consider the role of lying, liars, liar. What does 1 John teach about lying? Now, we, we should all know, I mean, we're Christians, right? We should all know that it's a sin to lie. Telling a, sin is, uh, telling a lie is, uh, is a sin. Perjury is, after all, prohibited in the ninth commandment. We see that in Exodus 20, verse 16. The Colossians were told not to lie to one another now that they put off the old man with his deeds. That's in Colossians 3, 9. And we are told that the lake of fire is reserved for liars among a number of other sins and sinners, Revelation 21, 8. Now, you also know, you've heard before, that the prohibition of deception is not a raw absolute. In other words, the Bible prohibits murder, but it doesn't prohibit all uh, killing. Uh, the Bible does, it's not in wartime, for example, uh, to camouflage your tank to look like a tree or a bush when in fact it is not a tree or a bush is not a violation of the ninth commandment, even though you are misleading somebody. Um, you see that in James 2.25, Rahab sent the spies out by a different way, it says, uh, by a different way than she said they had gone. In other words, she deceived the people pursuing the spies. And James tells us on top of that, James says it was that that caused her to be justified. Her, she was justified by faith, but her works justified her faith. So James 2.25 alludes to that in Exodus 1, 17 through 20. We have the account of the Hebrew midwives who told uh, Pharaoh, is, they, they interfered with Pharaoh's genocidal policy toward uh, young Hebrew uh, boy children, boy, young Hebrew boys. And uh, they misled the Pharaoh, and, got, and, and consequently God blessed them with households of their own. But these were wartime conditions. And it's the same thing with, uh, with what you might call counterfeit wartime con conditions, as in an in a athletic contest. Nobody, nobody thinks that it's a sin in a pickup basketball game to fake left and drive right. right? Um, and if your brother came to you after the game with an admonition and a rebuke, the Bible says you're not to lie to one another now that you put off the old man with his deeds, and you totally faked me out there, and I'm going to talk to the elders. You would say, go ahead, talk to the elders. I think they might want to have a talk with you. So we know, we know that the, uh, the prohibition of deception is not a raw absolute. It's contextualized the way the rest of the Bible is contextualized. But aside from such, I would say, such obvious exceptions, we do know that lying is simply a sin. Lying is simply a sin. Deception of that nature is simply a sin. But it is less well known that lying is foundationally about sin. Uh, lying is, is a sin, but lying is also about sin. And I want to explain how First uh, John uh, reveals this to, to us, manifests this to us. Now, it is a lie, as we consider the text itself, summarizing the text, it's a lie to say that you mailed the check when you know good and well that you did not mail the check. If, you, if, you, if a creditor calls you and you said, oh, the check's in the mail, and you know the check's not in the mail, and moreover, it's not going to be in the mail uh, because you don't have the money, 
this is a lie simpliciter. You're simply lying. This is different from a mistake. And one of the things that I, I see um, in counseling, particularly when you've got an intractable situation uh, where people have, uh, there's fellowship broken or a business deal went wrong, uh, oftentimes people will go straight to the accusation of a lie when it is simply an error. In other words, if someone says something that's not true, that doesn't make it a lie. If they say something that's not true and they know it's not true and they are telling it to you in order to get you to lay off, that's a lie. But if they tell you it's raining outside uh, because it was when they came in an hour and a half ago, but it's not raining outside now, that's simply an error. That's a mistake. That's not a lie. But a lie, a straight up lie, is a sin. Okay, so much, so far, so good. But there's almost always another kind of lie a deeper lie, a more foundational lie. And that is the prior lie that you have to tell yourself, convincing yourself that you are not really sinning, that you are not really lying. And so the truth is not in the person who lies to himself, says in our text, the truth is not in him. If a person is lying to himself, the truth is not in him, even though part of him knows what the truth is. A person who says he has no sin deceives himself. That's verse 8. Now, how is it possible? This is really an interesting phenomenon, self-deception. It says the person who says he has no sin deceives himself. How is it possible for one part of us to lie to another part of us and on top of that to have us buy it? Okay, now I understand Smith lying to Jones. I get that. Right? Smith lies to Jones. That makes sense. But how can Smith lie to Smith and Smith falls for it? How do we do that? Now, if we had just one brain cell, one brain cell, and that was it, and all it was capable of doing is thinking one thought, then self-deception wouldn't be possible. One brain cell, one thought, self-deception is not possible. But we are complex beings, and we have all kinds of things going on in our heads and hearts, and self-deception is a very real thing. How do we do that? Now, th this is an interesting theological problem. It's a pastoral problem. It's a, uh, uh, it's a high philosophical problem. How is such a trick accomplished? Now, I don't know why psychologists are allowed to get away with things like this, but they frequently are. Um, one time, a number of years ago, some psychologists ran a test where they gathered up a bunch of people who were uh, overweight, and they simply had them keep a journal. No diet, no nothing. Just, just keep a journal. Just keep a food journal. All we want you to do is write down whatever it is you eat. If you eat it, write it down. And write down when you eat it, and just they, they kept a record. And they kept a record for two or three weeks, and of course, everybody's just doing what they normally do, and they, they're writing it down. Nobody loses any weight. Then they scooped them all up and took them off to a secure location. And when they did that, they then fed them what they said they'd been eating the previous three weeks. <laughs> you can see this coming, right? If they, if they wrote down that they had a Snickers bar at 2 o'clock, someone would come into their room or their cell and give them a Snickers bar. If they said they had an apple, they, had, they got an apple. They just fed them scrupulously what they all claimed they had been eating the previous three weeks. And, of course, everybody started losing weight like crazy. <laughs> now, now... Does that mean that these people were self-consciously lying to the people? I'm going to write this down in the journal, and maybe they'll buy it. Right? Perhaps some will. But this sort of thing is the kind of thing where you lie to yourself first. Right? So when you tell a lie to others, 
almost certainly you're telling a lie to yourself first. Something's going on. You've got some juggling act going on inside. Now, how does this self-deception work? The scripture teaches us about self-deception elsewhere, and we're taught that one way that it happens is by copying a religious pose while not bridling your tongue. That's in James 1.26. That is a recipe for self-deception. Copying a, a, copying a religious pose, going to church, learning your catechism, learning the ropes, learning where, where to stand up and when to sit down, what, what, the names, what the words to the hymns are, learning the whole thing, being a religious person and talking a lot, that's a recipe for self-deception, uh, James says. Another way is through listening to good teaching without actually doing any of it. That's right next to this in James 1.22. If you listen to good teaching, if you listen to orthodox teaching, if you listen to foundationally biblical ethics being proclaimed from the pulpit, and you do that for long enough, you think it's the same thing as doing it. If you hear um, love commended from the pulpit, after a while you're going to think you're loving. If you hear purity commended from the pulpit, after a while you're going to think you're pure. And you're just going to think you're pure because you put up with that kind of teaching. I, I wouldn't be putting up with it if I were uh, not doing it, right? You start to think that listening to truth is just as good as doing it. You start to think listening to truth is just as good. Um, and it's not. James says, the one who hears the word and doesn't do the word, he doesn't say, if you hear the word and don't do the word, that's a bad, that's bad. He doesn't say, if you hear the word and don't do the, uh, do the word, you're sinning. He says, if you hear the word and don't do the word, you're deceiving yourself. You're self-deceived. About what? About this whole hearing and doing business. That's what, that's what you're deceived about. Now, of course, Going on through the text, if we confess our sins, that's in verse 9, if we confess our sins, which is the opposite of lying about them, then God forgives us and cleanses us because he is faithful and just. Notice, not because we are, but because he is faithful and just, he forgives our sins when we confess our sins. But confessing our sins is the opposite of lying about them. If, but if he says that we've sinned and that we claim that we have not sinned, then in effect, we are accusing him of being the liar. All right, there's, somebody's lying and it's either God or it's us. If God says you've sinned and we say that's not the case, if God says, and he's not talking about sinning at some point in time, he's talking whatever the point at issue is, sinning right now in this way, in this instance. Uh, if we say that's not true, then we're accusing him of being the liar. And if that's the case, then the truth is not in us. Now here's the, here's the setup. This is, the, this is how we get into this bad jam. Because we are created as God's image bearers, because we are created in the image of God, we were created in order to be in a right relationship with him, we were created to be mirrors reflecting the attributes of God, we were created in the image of God, we have a deep need to believe ourselves to be righteous. We have a deep need to be righteous. This is true of believers, non-believers. This is true of out-and-out pagans. One of the things that in, in my interaction with the new breed of militant atheists, Hitchens or Dawkins or people like that, is how fiercely indignantly moral they are. Right? They, they just have this tenacious um, commitment to their scheme of morality, whatever it is. And our culture, our unbelieving, immoral, rankly immoral culture, is fiercely moralistic. Fiercely moralistic. If you had a woman who was standing at a bus stop and she's visibly pregnant, six months pregnant, 
and she gets in a conversation with the person next to her, an average non-believer, and she's thinking about wrestling with the idea of whether to get an abortion or not because my, I'm a single mom and this is so difficult and everything. She's going to get affirmation and support. She's going to get affirmation and support. You, it's your decision and it's constitutional. Blah, blah, blah. But if she stands there at the bus, the bus stop, six months pregnant, and lights up a cigarette, Right? She's going to get fierce denunciation from everybody else in the, in the bus stop. How dare you risk a low birth weight? Right? You can chop the baby up in little pieces. You can chop the baby up in little pieces. But if you risk a low birth weight, we're going to be indignant with you. The whole climate change crusade is nothing but a crusade, a fierce, moralistic um, spasm. It's a frenzy because people want to be righteous. They have a, and, and it's not optional. We have a need to be righteous. We, we need to feel like we are in the right. And this is because we're image bearers. But because we have, together with our first parents, tumbled into the chaos of sin, we are not, in fact, righteous. All right? We have a deep need to be righteous. And as a matter of fact, we are the, we are the opposite of righteous. We are unrighteous. Now put those two realities together. The need to be righteous and the fact of our unrighteousness, you put those two things together, couple them, uh, uh, the deep need to be righteous, to be in the right, coupled with the fact that we are profoundly not in the right. What is the result? Self-deception is the necessary result. Self-deception is the necessary result. I need to be righteous, but I'm not righteous, and one of these things has to go, right? One of these has to go. I've got to lie about one of them, right? He that saith, 1 John 2, 4, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So the person who says, I know God, but it doesn't live the way Jesus says to live, doesn't walk like a Christian, the person who says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, that person is a liar. All right, now that's a problem. That's a big problem, right? Well, let's con uh, here's an another way we come at this. Bitterness always tells this kind of lie as well. If your internal dialogue starts out like this, I'm not bitter, I just want to pound his face into a jelly. Right? Or I'm not bitter, I just want to tell my side of the story one more time for the 37th time to myself at 2 a.m. I'm not bitter, I just want to go over the facts one more time, I just want to rehearse the whole thing. I'm not bitter, but well, if that's the way, if, if that's characteristic of your life, then you almost certainly have a problem. And that problem is what theologians call going to hell. That's, that's a problem. The problem is, let's back up. He that says, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. The person who lives in malice, the person who lives in bitterness, the, the person who lives in hostility and says he loves God is a liar. This, pinning us to the wall, makes us ask the obvious question. Let's look at it in the Greek. <laughs> is, is there an escape route? Is there an escape route in the Greek? Is there an escape route in the commentaries? Is there an escape route somewhere? You know how little boys, uh, often when they were going to get a, a spanking, uh, would go gather magazines and stick the magazines down their, the back of their trousers to, to serve as a buffer. Well, uh, the Danish philosopher uh, Soren Kierkegaard said that that's what we do with commentaries. 
Um, the word of God is going to come and give us the switching. And so we go get the commentaries and we stuff the commentaries down our pants. Well, you have to understand in the original context in the Aramaic thought world. <laughs> no, the problem, that, that's rationalization. If a man says in 1 John, 1 John 4.20, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Let's go over that again. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? Now, I want you to see that this theme of lying is a theme, is in fact a theme in 1 John. Bitter people are not just being unkind. They are also liars. Right? This is This is crucial. Bitter people are not just being unkind, they are also liars, and they are lying to themselves in the first instance. Manifest sin is glossed over, explained away, and attention is routinely drawn to the behavior of others. All right, so, you can see that if lying is fundamentally about our own sin, so if you're going to do something that's overtly a sin, you want to, you want to be righteous, and you want to sin, right? You want to be righteous, and there's the, you've got this attraction to this sin. It's clearly obvious you've got to tinker with something. You've got to tinker with the, de and tinkering with the definitions is one way to do it. Adjusting the definition of sin is a great way of telling yourself these pretty little lies. Now, absolute righteousness is established by, determined by, the way God is. We don't have a, an arbitrary and capricious list of rules up in heaven posted on the wall, and then for some reason we've all got to do those things. It's not that way. We have God, God in the last resort has nothing to give us but himself. Right? Nothing to give us but himself. He is all, we are in him, we live and move and have our being. He is all in all. And if we want to be in fellowship with him, we have to be in fellowship with the way he is. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, 21, it says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. If your deeds are wrought in God, the, you're coming to the light. Christ is the light. God is the light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, which is in 1 John 1, 5. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the holiness of God's character is itself the ultimate law. The holiness of God's character is itself the ultimate law, and any deviation from this character is what all sin actually is. 1 John 3, 4, and the ESV defines it this way, says it this way. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawless, lawlessness. So what is sin? Sin is to be out of harmony, out of step, in, in some state of tension with the way God is, with the attributes of God. God is love. God is just. God is holy. God is kind. God is good. God is severe. All of, God, God is all of these things together. And to be out of step with that is to be lawless, right? To be out of step with the way God is, is to be lawless. Now, remember that we've, are, in the previous message, in the first message, we've already defined worldliness as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
1 John 2, 15 through 17. Remember also that when Eve was dazzled by these things, she was deceived about them. Right? Eve was deceived. 2 Corinthians 11, 3, also in the ESV. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Eve fell for the, the enticements of this worldliness, lust of the flesh, the, the tree was good for food, uh, lust of the eyes, the, it was delightful to look on, and the pride of life, it was able to make men wise. When she was seduced by that lure to worldliness, she was deceived. But the deception has layers. Every deception has uh, layers. So when the devil comes to lie to you and the devil lies to you about something and you buy it, you believe it, right? I said earlier, we understand Smith lying to Jones. When the devil lies to you, the devil's clever enough to pitch his lies in such a way as to resonate with you. So he, he pitches his lie to you and then you say, yeah, that's right. You take it, own it. And then you tell the lie to yourself and then you buy it, right? And part of you knows and part of you doesn't know what you're doing. And the reason part of you knows is if someone comes upon you in the middle of the sin and you jump like startled rabbit, that means that's the part of you that knows, right? That's the boy with his hand in the cookie jar who reacts in a particular spectacular way when someone comes in and flips on the lights. That reaction tells you what they know. But there, there's another rationalization that's layered over the whole thing. All right, so self-deception, it's the serpent's deception of Eve but it's also Eve's deception of Eve. So rest assured, rest assured of this. With regard to any besetting sin, any sin that seems to have you by the throat, you, and, and I think probably also with all other sins as well, but particularly with besetting sins, particularly when you've been down this road a hundred times, or you've, you've been here a hundred times, when you're dealing with besetting sins, this is the issue. The, your great problem with sin is likely not the, one, not the thing that you think it is. Your problem with sin is probably not what you think it is. Your great problem is not the porn, but rather the lies that you tell yourself about it. Your problem is not the porn, but rather the lies. The, the lies are the superstructure that supports the whole thing. The porn, yeah, the porn is sin. Porn is sin, but what about the lies? The lies are, are down beneath the surface. The, li the lies are the foundational structure. Your big issue is not the attitude of bitterness. Your big issue is the lying narrative that you've constructed that feeds the bitterness. The bitterness is the plant. It's a root. It, Hebrews says bitterness is a root that grows up and defiles many. It's a house plant. Your lies are the pot that you keep it in. The lies are the pot that you keep it in, the window that you keep it in, the miracle grow that you put on it. Those are all your lies. And then you say, oh, why is this plant so big now? Why is it filling the window? Your great sin is not your covetousness proper, but rather all the free market jargon that you've used to entangle your heart. Now, no problem with free markets. The Bible, I think, I'm convinced, teaches that markets ought to be free because Men ought to be free, but it's also true that liars grab good things and tell themselves lies. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not greedy for money. I'm not avaricious. I'm not, I'm not grasping after money. I just want free and untrammeled markets. 
No, that's free market jargon. There's a difference between free market commitments and free market jargon. So, lust is, the, lust is a sin, porn is a sin, but the lies are a bigger sin. You know about the porn, you don't know about the lies. Bitterness is a sin, yeah. You know about the bitterness, but you, you yeah, I'm bitter, but look what they did. You know, you've got a rationalization for it. The bitterness is a sin, but you kind of know about that. You don't know about the lies. Your lying narrative, your whole self-image is something that's invisible to you. You don't see it. You don't see the set of assumptions that you've bought into that lie underneath your whole approach to the internet and pornography and sexual relations. You don't see that whole tissue of lies. You don't see what supports your covetousness and your greed because that's what self-deception does. If you are tangled up in a particular sin, and again, practice on besetting sins, practice on the ones that you really wish would go away. If you're tangled up in a particular sin, the first thing you need to do is repent of the fact that you believe that you understand what's actually going on. You need to repent of your conviction that you get it. You don't get it. You're the one with the problem. Now, here's the, here's the difficulty. If you, if you have someone come to you to confront you, if I'm worried about uh, you staying up, your roommate comes, I'm worried about your computer use at two in the morning, or I'm your, a longtime friend or a person who used to be a friend comes to you to talk about your resentment and your, your bitterness, what's the first thing that crowd, leaps, out, leaps out of our heart into our throat and into our mouth almost, almost before we have time to think about it? This person doesn't understand. This person doesn't get it. This person doesn't know the history. This person doesn't know what that person did to me. This person doesn't know how hard I work. This person doesn't understand how much pressure I'm under. This person doesn't understand. I would say, on the contrary, and this is, this is coming from 40 plus years of pastoral counseling experience, your friends are probably the only ones who do understand, and you're the one person in the room who almost certainly doesn't understand what's going on. When you are dealing with a sin that has tripped you up repeatedly, you have to confront the fact that you are ignorant about what's going on. You don't know how to stop it. You don't know what's causing it. You keep making resolutions. You don't need another resolution. You need another resolution like a hole in the head. You don't need to fix it the way you've not been fixing it up to this point. You, don't, you do not understand what's going on because you've trusted in a mess of lies, lies that you yourself invented or which the devil fed to you and you said, that looks good, that'll do, and you fed them to yourself. And this means that the way out, the way of repentance, is to name and repent of all the lying first. The lies must go first. Stop confessing the wrong sin first. It says in Scripture that, that uh, we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. The Bible, the Bible tells us in Romans that we are not supposed, I don't like using the word, the phrase self-image because it brings in psycho, psycho jargon, but we all have a narrative, we all have a story, and we are the protagonist in that story, right? Everybody here has a movie going and you're the protagonist, you're the main guy in that movie, you're the main person in that movie. Some of you have earbuds so you can have a soundtrack going through life. You, and you walk down the street looking in shop windows to see if the movie's still going. There I, there I go, look at me go. So, so we all are the protagonist in our story. 
And this is going on with, every, and so, with everyone, and so you should ask yourself, am I reading this right? Am, am I really? Am I really the protagonist? Am I really the good guy? Stop confessing the wrong sin first. Of course, lust is a sin. And of course, bitterness is, and greed is, and all the others. But learn to say this to God. Father, I am a liar. Father, I come to you with my lying heart and my lying tongue. Father, I am a liar. Forgive me for all of my deceptions, both of myself and of others. Father, reveal to me where those lies are. Now, here's a, you want to live on the edge? Here's a dangerous prayer. Lord, reveal to me the lies I tell to myself. And then, okay, one safety valve, but not all at once. <laughs> Don't. You mean there's more than one? Yeah. Phase the, reveal to me what's actually going on. Reveal to me what other people are actually putting up with. Reveal to me how I, other people have to seek to forgive me and to cover my ineptitude and to, to cover it in love. And Father, I know that I'm prone to self-deception. Why? Because I'm breathing air and I have 10 toes and I'm a descendant of Adam. That, that's why you're prone to this. The heart is deceitfully wicked, the Old Testament tells us. Father, I am a liar. Forgive me for all of my deceptions, both of myself and others. There's this iceberg, and the, the tip of the iceberg that you see is the porn problem or the, the lust problem, the bitterness problem, the greed problem. It's the besetting sin problem. And then you've got this whole iceberg underneath. You want God to drain the, drain the ocean. You want to see the whole iceberg. And then what? Then what? Well, you might say this message so far has been an awful lot of law. All right, there's, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of law. What's the solution? Well, of course, Christ. But this is, this is key. If sin is our problem, if sin is our problem, then Christ is the solution to that problem. If sin is the problem, Christ is our salvation from that problem. This means that it's not possible to be deceived about the nature of your sin without simultaneously being deceived about the nature of Christ. Right? The, these things are twinned. These things are sin and Christ are understood as a package deal. To lie about sin is to lie about Christ. To lie about sin is to lie about Christ, the Savior from sin. And to lie about Christ is to lie about sin. Now, in 1 John 5, 10, notice what it says. This is, we have the issue of lying coming up, coming up again. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, you see, through the book of 1 John, we have... If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. If you, if, lying has to do with sin. Self-deception has to do with sin. Sin, 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 Christ. You can't lie about Christ unless you're lying about sin. And you can't lie about sin unless you're lying about Christ. Christ, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You cannot confess Christ without confessing sin. And you cannot confess sin without confessing Christ. And you cannot deny sin without denying Christ. Sin is revealed whenever Christ is revealed. 
Whenever, whenever Christ is preached, sin is declared. The, the nature of sin is, sin is laid bare. Sin lies hidden whenever Christ is veiled. And this is why so much of the church lies in a mass of confusions today, stupefied by the world's lies. And the, the world can, can tell the most transparent, manifest lies. Hey, we've, science has discovered that boys can be girls. Right. So, uh, and if you don't buy that, you're a science denier. This is why so many Christians worship at Ichabod Memorial. The glory has departed from the church. The Greek word, uh, the Hebrew word Ichabod simply means the glory has departed. The glory has departed from the church, but it is in the interest of clerics and professional religionists to prevent awareness of this from getting around. The glory is gone. The glory is gone. The church is supposed to be salt and light. The church is supposed to be a potent force in the world. And in North America, at any rate, the glory is largely gone. And this is it's not because the name Jesus is not used. It's not because Jesus is not used. It's because Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin sacrifice for sin is not proclaimed. Not proclaimed in an unveiled way. So the professional clerics and religionists take a correct on paper gospel and they smother it with academic jargon or with soothing therapeutic whispers or with reassuring devotional cliches. Jesus, 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 feel good, feel good, feel good. But we actually have to proclaim Christ crucified. Christ crucified for sin. Your pettiness, your sinfulness, your lustfulness, your grasping heart, all of those had to, are the reason Jesus was on the cross. All of those sins were gathered up by Christ and nailed there on the cross and were buried together with him and he rose again from the dead. So, so when, when we don't want to preach Christ the sacrifice for sin, we don't want to preach Christ in a way that manifests the sin and Christ at the same time. If you preach Christ, you're preaching sin. If you preach sin, you're preaching Christ. All of this is nothing but a veiling of the gospel. And it's done for the same reason that Moses felt that he had to do it. You remember Moses came down off the mountain and his face was radiant and shining. And Moses, Paul tells us, put a veil over his face so that the Jews would not see the glory fading, the glory departing. He, Moses covered his face so the Jews would not see the Ichabod side of this. Moses really was communing with God. He really was radiant. He really did shine like an angel. And he came down off the mountain and he put a veil over his face so people would not see the glory departing. Professional theologians, parade ground generals, don't want all the troops to see that the glory is gone. But we are not called to us. In Ronald Knox's uh, translation of the New Testament, he puts 2 Corinthians 3.13 this way, which is quite striking. It is not for us to use veiled language as Moses veiled his face. It is not for us, Christian ministers, to use veiled language as Moses veiled his face. If you, if you um, do give a varnished and garbled account of all of this, what you're doing is veiling Christ. But when Christ died on the cross, what happened to the veil in the temple? The veil was rent from top to bottom. The, rail, the, the veil was torn in two because access to God is now complete. We may now come to God with unveiled face because we come to an unveiled Christ. And when we come to an unveiled Christ, our sins are unveiled 
and forgiven. Our sins are unveiled, but the sting is gone. Our sins are unveiled and forgiven. It says in Proverbs, he who covers his sins will not prosper. All right, if you cover your sins with the dirty old blanket of your self-rationalizations and excuses, if you cover sin with that kind of blanket of rationalization, you will not prosper. But he who repents and forsakes will have mercy, this, the, the text says. So veiled language about Christ is veiled language about sin, and veiled language about sin is veiled language about Christ. But we are called to be the people of God, which means that we are summoned to worship our God and Father in the name of an unveiled Christ. An unveiled Christ. Christ with no jargon. Christ with no highfalutin talk. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ resurrected, and Christ ascended. Christ, the unveiled Christ, is the Savior Christ. The unveiled Christ is the Savior Christ. The unveiled Christ is the one who makes it possible for a, me a messed up, bent, twisted, tangled human being to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to God on, on an honest footing. Your, your biggest challenge, every, and I'm by you, I mean, you know, you, Every human being, every, every person here, this is a generic, every person here, you and me and everybody outside also. Your biggest challenge, if you've named the name of Christ, I'll tell you what your biggest challenge in your sanctification is. It's to get up in the morning, to go into the bathroom, turn on the light, open your eyes and look in the mirror and tell the truth. That's the challenge. Tell the truth. Who are you? What are you actually like? What are your actual temptations? All right, not, not, uh, so um, if you say to God, God reveal to me, show me all the ways in which I'm lying to myself. Show me all the ways in which I'm lying to myself. And what, what's the catch? Why do you not want to say that prayer? Well, there's two kinds of prayers we don't want to pray. One is the prayer we don't want to pray because we think that God will say no. Um, Lord, I'd like three red Ferraris, and I'd like uh, freezers full of ice cream in the basement. And we don't pray that prayer because we're afraid that God will say no, reasonably. We also pray, avoid prayers that we're afraid God will say yes. Lord, reveal to me, tell me the truth about what I'm actually doing. Tell me the truth. I, God, if there's a truth that I, you're not asking for exhaustive truth. You're not asking to be omniscient. You're not asking for infinite wisdom. You're simply asking that God would enable you to see yourself the way you're supposed to see yourself. I'm a fallen creature, forgiven creature, I'm a Christian, and I need to have an understanding of myself that is more accurate than it currently is. And Lord, would you take me to that place this week? Now, why are we reluctant to pray that prayer? Because we're afraid you'd say yes, right? We're afraid he would grant that request. We think we, he would grant that request probably starting this afternoon. And, and we're not quite ready for it. And, so, and one of the reasons we're not quite ready for it is we don't want revival to break out with just us, right? We think, okay, this, this sermon applies to everybody in the room. This sermon applies to absolutely everybody. But I would hate to come to a real, an accurate realization of myself and say, oh, Lord, I am the problem. I am the problem. And then all God's people said, amen. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm, we're glad the one bad actor in the church finally. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go first. If I go first, then all of a sudden, everybody else is going to juke me, and then, then they're going to hang back. And No, the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit can tell the truth to more than one person. The Holy Spirit, you, you have marriage problems. You have marriage problems because of you, not because of her. You have marriage problems because of you, not because of him. You have problems with your kids because of you, not because of your kids. Or you have problems with your friends who have dim views of how your kids are behaving, right? You, you're defensive of your children. There's a natural mama bear, right? defensive. You're thinking, well, he's a sweet little balam, known up and down the street as demon child. <laughs> and to his brothers and sisters as Rasputin and footer jammies. <laughs> but you, you've had a sweet talk, and, and you've, you, you're all sort of defensive, and you don't want to know the truth. And you don't want, and you don't want to go first, because if you go first, then everybody else is going to hang back, and, and then they're where will we then be? The truth matters to you. The truth should matter to you because you are a Christian and you are serving and worshiping the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And you can't have him without having the truth. And you can't have him without having the truth about everything, but particularly about you. In Calvin's Institutes, he wonderfully begins his institutes by saying that the knowledge of God uh, hangs together with knowledge of self. You can't know God without knowing yourself, and you can't know yourself without knowing God. You can't know Christ without knowing your sin, and you can't know your sin without knowing Christ. And if you start recognizing, you know, I might be one of the drivers, and all the tangles that I'm in, I might, I might be one of the contributing problems in the, in the snarl that I have with my business partner, in the snarl that I have with my roommate, in the snarl that I have in my family, in the snarl that I have with my brother, in the snarl that I have with my parents, in the snarl, whatever it is, in that snarl, your prayer is, God, show me Christ and show me myself in the light of Christ. So you want to see the bottom part of the iceberg and you want to see Christ who alone can melt it. You want to see the bottom part of the iceberg, you want to know, and you also want to see Christ at the same time because Christ is your Savior. Christ is the one who deals with all this. God didn't just send Christ so that we would know our sin so that he could rub our nose in it. That's not what, that's not what he's doing. He sent Christ so he could reveal our sin to us so that we could know ourselves in truth and come into fellowship with God the Father. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the truth itself. I pray, Father, that you would help usher us into a greater understanding of the truth of you and the truth about ourselves. Every week as we celebrate this meal, we repeat the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus who said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. In other words, we celebrate this meal in anticipation of heaven. Every Lord's Day, we're counting down to heaven. All the indications are that this world has a number of generations to go. God promised that his mercy would extend to thousands of generations, and we aren't even close to 1,000 
generations in the history of the world. The Bible counts 40 years as a generation, and in roughly 6,000 years, there's only been about 150 generations so far. Besides, the Bible says that Jesus must reign in heaven until all his enemies have been put beneath his feet, and the last enemy will be death itself. But this is a glorious countdown, the countdown to death no more, the countdown to tears wiped away, the countdown to all things made new, heaven come down to earth. But every one of us will stand before the Lord within a generation or so. The power of death has been defeated, but these mortal bodies will grow weak and die. And so every time we celebrate this meal, we're also counting down to that day, the day the Lord comes to take us home, the day this life is over. And that day is far closer than any of us, any of us may imagine. And that is either the most glorious thought, your greatest longing, your highest joy, or else it is only pure terror and horror. But you cannot celebrate this meal rightly and be terrified of the Lord coming to take you home. We celebrate in this meal the Lord's death, triumphing over our guilt and sin and his coming for us. Therefore, every time we eat this meal together, we look in faith to our Savior, believing in full assurance that he will come and carry us through death and bring us safely home. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. You ever wonder, as you're reading through the Gospels, you ever wonder why there are so many blind people? He's healing all kinds of people, but it's just blind people over and over again, it seems like. Another blind people, blind man here, blind man there. And the reason is, is because we're blind. It's the Lord knew that we needed to hear that story and read that story over and over again because that's us. We can't see. And, and you remember blind Bartimaeus in particular? He was the really impertinent one, the, the one that just wouldn't be quiet. He heard Jesus was coming and starts just making a ruckus and hollering and yelling and the crowd says, quiet down, quiet down. He's a respectable teacher. And he just wouldn't quit. He yelled all the louder and of course then Jesus comes and hears him and heals him. That's what you need to be like, right? See, I can't see, right? I am a liar. Father, I can't see. Help me see and keep hollering. Keep crying out. Keep asking Jesus to shine his light on you. And you know what he does in all the stories. He comes and he opens the eyes. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. And amen.